Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I do want to welcome again all our friends from Crawford Avenue. It's so good to see y'all and glad you're here this morning. Um, We are actually continuing this morning our series that we began on Easter Sunday when we had the joint service together uh, down at Crawford. So we've been walking through. uh, We looked that morning at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've been walking through uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and now this morning we'll conclude this series entitled Living Like Jesus is Risen uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll look at verses 1 to 10 this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, you should find a Bible there. Uh, You'll find our passage on page 966. 966 give you just a minute to turn there. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful uh, speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you and praise you once again for the opportunity to gather around your word. And Lord, we know that when we come to your word, we are availed of so many blessings. You have so many good things for us in your word. And so, Father, we come before you now and we trust you with this time. We trust you with the preaching and we trust you with the hearing. And we pray, Father, that you would help us. We pray, Father, as we come to your word now, that you would work thousands of good things in our own lives. And then that that would rip out, ripple out into our community and to the nations for your glory. So do great things in this time, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we had the privilege of hosting some of the folks from Crawford uh, last Sunday afternoon for our Berean Basics class. I know many of you were not able to make it, but some were here and uh, enjoyed sharing with you a bit of our mission and vision as a church. And uh, I just want to remind us this morning that our mission here at Berea is to glorify God by enjoying, living, and proclaiming the gospel. So our mission is about, our mission has to do with what we're about, what we're going to do, Okay. But then our vision, so we have a vision statement as well, our vision addresses what would it look like if God in His grace and mercy allowed us to actually live out our mission as a church. 
So, so if God were to fill us with his spirit and we were actually to do this, if we were actually to glorify God by enjoying and living and proclaiming the gospel, what would come out of that? What would it look like? And so we've put together a vision document and we've listed any number of things that we believe would be produced if we really were a God-glorifying, gospel-centered church. The list is about two and a half pages long, so it's a number of things that we've listed out. But I just want to share a few of those things with you now. Some of the things on that list are as follows. Marriages are being restored by the gospel. We are becoming a diverse people, not because our central focus is diversity, but our central focus is the gospel, which inspires diversity. And though our city has been broken by racial, recon- uh, racial division for centuries, we stand as a compelling witness for racial reconciliation. It would mean that we become a people who practically love the weak and the distressed and the poor in our city. It would mean that we become a people who really love and care for orphans, rejoicing that God has predestined us for adoption. We're champions for orphan children, and our church is known for a culture of adoption. This is one of the things we have listed as well. This is a big one, something that we're praying towards, is that God would raise up from our own congregation a hundred missionaries and that they would be sent out to the nations to proclaim the gospel. So it reads, our vision statement, a hundred missionaries from our church are serving on the mission field. Families are considering and deciding to commit their lives full time to reaching the underserved and unreached peoples of the world. There's a number of other things we list as well, but these are things that we are praying towards. Some of these things we praise God that already we're beginning to see evidences of and God's working and doing in our church and other things we're just kind of grasping for and we're praying that in the future God would make it, as a rea- make it a reality as we continue to pursue this mission of glorifying God by enjoying living and proclaiming the gospel. Now what I want us to ask this morning in light of the passage that I just read is what kind of people... What kind of community must we be if God is to fulfill this mission and this vision among us? For God to do His work in us and through us that He desires to do, to impact people with the gospel, to reach the nations with the gospel, what type of people or community must we be? You know, we we should note that as we talk about our mission and vision statement as a church, it's not just going to happen because we think it would be nice for it to happen, right? But rather, it requires a certain type of people. It requires a certain type of community. It requires a people and a community where the gospel runs deep, and we are empowered by the gospel for gospel ministry. In this series entitled Living Like Jesus is Risen, we've been walking through 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, and what Paul has been doing is he's been showing us what his ministry looks like, what a ministry looks like that is lived in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this section here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is particularly concerned to commend his ministry to those at the church in Corinth because there were those in the church of Corinth who were trying to undermine Paul's ministry, trying to undermine his gospel. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider three characteristics of Paul's ministry taken here from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We see them. In, in our text, and we'll walk through our text, and I'll show you each one. First is the urgency of Paul's ministry. Secondly is the integrity of Paul's ministry. And third is the perception and reality of Paul's ministry. Okay, so those are the three points. The urgency, the integrity, and the perception and reality of Paul's ministry. 
Now, as we walk through this passage and this Paul's description of his ministry and mission, I want you to keep this question in mind. What kind of person, what kind of person is God calling me to be so that his mission might be lived out in and through me? All right, so as we walk through these verses, keep that question in mind. What kind of person is God calling me to be so that his mission might be lived out in me and through me? With that in mind, let's look first at all at the urgency of Paul's ministry. Look there in verses 1 to 2 and we read these words. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, really, we're going to start off here where we ended last week. And I know many of you weren't here last week, so I'll catch you up. At the end of the, of the latter part of chapter 5, Paul describes the ministry that God has called him to as a ministry of reconciliation. Okay? So look there in chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, and we read these words. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 18, All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, as we think about the ministry of reconciliation, it's apparent that the ministry of reconciliation contains a message. And the message is that God has reconciled us to himself through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus, Jesus, this is what's happening at the cross, when we believe and trust in Jesus, Jesus takes our sins upon himself at the cross, and then he offers us his perfect record of righteousness. As a result, we are forgiven, and then we are brought into right relationship with God. Now, not only is there a message when it comes to the ministry of reconciliation, but we also see in these verses that this message must be proclaimed, it must be shared, so that others might come to a point where by faith they experience the life and blessing of being reconciled to God. And Paul says in these verses that he was called, and by extension, the church of Jesus Christ is called to faithfully share this message. And as Paul talks about sharing this message and proclaiming this message to others, we see undoubtedly that there is a sense of urgency with the Apostle Paul about about speaking this message to others. You saw it there in chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Or now, as as this flow of thought continues into chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 1, Paul continues this same idea, and he says, Working together with him, that is, working with God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 2, For he says, that is, God says, In a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Now it's interesting because when Paul says that in verse 2 of chapter 6, you notice there that it's in quotations. In your Bible you'll see that. In a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's in quotations. Paul is citing another passage of Scripture. 
Actually, he's citing the book of Isaiah, which is a book in the Old Testament. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And Paul is citing Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. It's interesting because in Isaiah chapter 49, which again was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Isaiah is speaking of the coming Messiah. He refers to him actually as the servant of the Lord. It's a passage that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, and it was written about Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 49, actually, Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord, and this is what he says. This is actually the servant of the Lord speaking. Isaiah is kind of putting words into his mouth. And the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And here's the verse that Paul cites. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Now, why would Paul cite that verse from Isaiah chapter 49? Here's what Paul is seeing. He's looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And then he's looking at this prophecy that Isaiah gave regarding the life and ministry of the coming Messiah. And he sees that the two have converged. So that as he looks at the life and ministry of Jesus, the words of Isaiah the prophet are true. It seemed in Jesus' life and death that he had labored in vain. It seemed in his life and in his death that his strength had been spent for nothing and vanity. As he looked at Jesus' life and death, it was clear that he was deeply despised and abhorred by the nations, just as Isaiah the prophet had declared. But it was also true that God heard the call of his servant and the day of favor, the time of favor, the day of salvation had come because when the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, cried out to God, God raised him from the dead. And Paul says, now, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. God raised Jesus and in the resurrection, God vindicated the work of his servant. In the resurrection, God saved his servant from all his enemies. In the resurrection, God exalted his servant above all kings and princes and leaders of this world. So Paul concludes in chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the time, now is the day of salvation. Against all odds and against all the opposition of this world, God saved His servant, and now He is offering salvation to all people. And as a result, as he looks at the promises of God from Isaiah, and he looks at them being fulfilled in Christ, and God has sent his salvation, he's redeemed his servant, he's saved his Messiah, Paul says, now is the time to believe. Now is the time to trust. Now is the time to be reconciled to God. You need not wait any longer. God is fulfilling all his promises through his son, Jesus Christ. We see it's apparent here in these verses that as, as Paul reflects on the message of reconciliation, there's an urgency about the Apostle Paul to share this message and proclaim it with others. I don't want to spend a lot more time on this before we move on to our next point, but I do want to simply say this, that if we are to be a people who are winning souls for Christ, seeing people reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, there must be some sense of urgency about us. 
We must be able to say with a genuine urgency, given what God has done to purchase you through the death and resurrection of His Son, be reconciled to God. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't allow there to be any obstacles or hindrances. Cast them all aside and trust and believe in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you're a Christian or not, that would simply be my appeal to you now. Be reconciled to God. You need not wait any longer. Go to Him. Trust in Him. And you will be forgiven and you will be reconciled to God. The second aspect here, or characteristic of Paul's ministry, is the integrity of his ministry. So first is the urgency of his ministry. Secondly is the integrity of Paul's ministry. Look there in verse 3, and we'll read through to verse 8a. Okay, so verse 3. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. So Paul begins here by saying, look, the ministry that God has given me And the calling that he has placed on my life is far too significant for me to undermine that ministry with immoral or foolish living. He says that in verse 3, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And then in verses 4 through 8, Paul goes on to lay out what a faithful gospel ministry looks like. And this is surprising, especially to the church in Corinth, and it may be to some of us this morning, that as Paul lays out for the church in Corinth, as he commends his ministry to them, he doesn't focus on his accolades, all the things he's accomplished, all the victories that he's won, but rather Paul highlights his hardships, his character, and spiritual power. Notice this. In verses 4 and 5, Paul highlights his hardships. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Here's his hardships. By great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Now think about this as Paul has, because this makes sense, right? As Paul has been called to the ministry of reconciliation. We need to remember that those he is called to proclaim this message to are by necessity alienated from God. Otherwise, they would not need to be reconciled. And that is true of all humanity, right? In our natural state, we are alienated from God. We're at enmity with God. We're enemies of God. That's what the scriptures say. And here's the thing. If you come to those who are hostile to God with a message to be reconciled to God, they won't always respond well. And oftentimes they didn't to the Apostle Paul. In addition to that, we know that Satan, who hates reconciliation and loves division and loves conflict, will rise up and oppose God's messengers at every point. We can say with confidence that almost nothing is more clear from Jesus' life and ministry than that the ministry of reconciliation will be met with opposition and with hardship and with suffering. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ, right? 
Was Jesus well received? No. And as we think about God calling us on mission as a people and as a church, as two separate churches that even may be becoming one church together, one of the things that is so helpful is that before we embark on mission to accept the reality, to accept the principle that if you are called to mission, you are called to suffer. A call to mission is a call to suffer. And if you know that up front, then when the suffering comes, you will be far less disillusioned. Right? A call to mission is a call to suffer. No doubt Paul's call to suffer was extreme. Not everyone will be called to suffer to the same extremities of Paul, but everyone to a greater or lesser degree who embraces Christ's mission will be called to suffer. And Paul teaches us here that our ministries are not to be, at the end of the day, so much judged by our accolades and our accomplishments, but rather by our willingness and faithfulness to persevere through suffering out of love for Christ and His mission. The second thing Paul highlights, not only his hardships, but also his character. You see there in verse 6, Paul highlights his character qualities of himself and his missionary companions. He says, We commend ourselves by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. Now, that's interesting because Paul lists out here a series of character traits, but right in the middle of those character traits, he mentions the Holy Spirit. Now, why does he do that? That seems kind of odd. Well, the reason actually is pretty obvious. The reason is because when one believes and trusts in Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit. And as Paul tells us, it's by the reception of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that then these character traits are produced in our lives. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So when we receive the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, this is what the Spirit produces. These types of character traits. It doesn't mean perfection. No doubt we struggle with sin and wrestle with sin even on a daily basis. But it is worth noting that Paul says, that Paul says when a man or a woman is being influenced by the Holy Spirit, when a man or a woman is full of the Holy Spirit, you can be assured of that by looking at their lives. If they're being changed by the Holy Spirit... If they are becoming more and more like Christ, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. Paul goes on in another section where he's talking about spiritual leaders in the life of the church in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus 1 to list the qualifications of elders and deacons. And it is noteworthy that in that list of qualifications, almost every qualification that Paul mentions has to do with a person's character. You know, in pursuing Christ on mission, there is no substitute, not giftedness, not accolades, not relationships and networks and connections with other people. There is no substitute for godly character that is inspired in one's life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul offers his ministry, he commends his ministry based on his hardships that he suffered, based on his character, and then third, based on the spiritual power that he's experienced. Look there in uh, verse 7 and 8. Here Paul says, We commend ourselves by truthful speech, or some translations translate that, the word of truth. 
So it's not just the idea that he speaks truthful words, he's honest, but on his lips is the word of truth, which would be the scriptures or the gospel, right? So we commend ourselves by the word of truth and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And here we have the image of a shield and a sword, right? We think about Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about the full armor of God. And we're to take up the shield of faith, which is a defensive weapon to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And we're to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which we can use actively and offensively to take ground for Christ. Paul has this in mind. He is to take up the weapons of righteousness, the shield of faith, and the, and the word of God. And then he finishes this list by saying, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. So Paul's ministry was, we see in these verses, Paul's ministry was a spiritual ministry in which his confidence was not in himself, but it was in God and in God's word. In fact, when Paul wrote this same church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, he speaks of his ministry in this way. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's the word of truth, right? The word of truth was on his lips. The gospel was on his lips. He goes on to say, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So Paul didn't trust himself, right? He goes on to say, But my message was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And here's the reason why, verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, my friends, because we want to be a people, and, and I know, Crawford, I trust that you do as well. We want to be a people on mission for Christ, taking ground for Jesus. And if you want to experience the spiritual power of God in your life, I just want to say it's not a mystery. You don't have to go on some long journey to try to figure it out. Be weak before God. Cry out to Him for power and for the power of His Holy Spirit. And then be a man or a woman who loves His Word who knows his word and loves his word and shares his word with others, and you will know the power of God in your life. Paul says he commends his ministry based on these three criteria, his hardships, his character, and spiritual power. Now, third, the perception and reality of Paul's ministry. The perception and reality of Paul's ministry. Look there in verse 8, uh, the second part of verse 8, and we'll read through to verse 10. Paul says, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. So Paul concludes this section here as he's commending his ministry to the church in Corinth with seven antitheses. Okay, let me explain to you what that means. And antithesis is two things that are set beside each other that are intended to oppose one another or uh, contrast one another. Okay, so in each one of these, we see that Paul is setting forth phrases that are in opposition or contrast to one another. Paul will begin by stating how one might perceive his ministry, okay? And then he goes on to speak about the reality of his ministry. He contrasts the two or sets them in opposition to one another. Now, some of the perceptions that folks had of Paul and his missionary companions were just false. 
So you see there in verse 8, some think that he's an imposter. Well, that's just false. But other perceptions that people had of Paul and his companions were, in fact, true, but they were incomplete. There was a deeper reality, and Paul wanted them to see that deeper reality. So, for example, if we look at these things that are listed here, it is true that Paul and his companions were dying. They were punished on a number of occasions. They were sorrowful. They were poor. They had nothing. But Paul wants his critics to know this was only part of the story, that there was a deeper reality that the church in Corinth was not seeing. So let's just walk through these antitheses, these statements here, very briefly. Look there in verse 8. He says, We are treated as impostors and yet true. As I said before, this was just wrong. They were not impostors. But this was encouraged by the super apostles and some who were present there in the church in Corinth. The gospel had not gone deep enough into their hearts. And so they judged, as we saw last week in chapter 5, verse 12, they judged merely on outward appearance, just on how things looked and by worldly standards. And they were blind to the deeper spiritual reality and substance of what God was doing through Paul and the apostles. You see the second one there in verse 9. He says, We are treated as unknown and yet well-known. Some translate this as unaccepted and yet accepted. It's very similar to the first contrast that we looked at. The next one is in verse 9, the third one. As dying and behold we live. Now this is great because this is really the paradox of gospel ministry. We've seen it again and again in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and now in chapter 6. Gospel ministry often looks like dying. But it's by dying that we experience the life of Jesus' resurrection power. So, this was very real in Paul's life and ministry. When he was writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 9, listen how he articulates this principle in his own ministry. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. So before coming to Corinth, he was in Asia. And he experienced some affliction there. And he wants to tell them what that affliction was like. He says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. So Paul says, We were ministering in Asia before we came to you in Corinth. And we were ministering there in such a way that that we thought we were not going to make it. We thought we were going to die. But here's the reason why. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul says, in this mission, as I'm following Jesus on this mission, Jesus brought me to the brink of death. And why? So that I would not trust in myself or my own power, but that I would trust in God who raises the dead. You see death, but the reality is resurrection power. The fourth one is in verse 9. As punished and yet not killed. So whether it was the five separate times that Paul was whipped to the point of death, or the three times that he was beaten with rods, or the time that he was stoned and he tells us that he was left for dead, God delivered him and spared his life over and over and over again. The fifth one is found in verse 10. This is beautiful. He says, as sorrowful. This is Paul describing his ministry. As sorrowful, yet 
always rejoicing. So in Paul's letters, he is open and honest with us about the reality that his life and ministry is filled with sorrow and filled with grief. Paul, like Jesus, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And listen, you might be here this morning and maybe you're not yet a Christian. Or maybe you would say, I'm not a Christian and I know I'm not. And I just want you to know, because some people have this perception of Christianity, Christianity does not deny the reality of grief in this life. Far from it. Christianity is not some pie-in-the-sky, cheesy uh, belief system divorced from reality. Rather, Christianity speaks deeply and honestly about the sorrows and griefs of this life. But at the same time, Christianity affirms that grief is not all there is to know about this life, that there is a story taking place that's playing itself out in human history, and it is the story of God's redemption and grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that as we experience that grief, and as we experience that sorrow, as we hold to this hope, it leads to rejoicing and to joy even in the midst of sorrow. Notice here, Paul does not say, because we, would be, we tend to go to one extreme or the other, Paul does not say, my ministry is all sorrow. Neither does Paul say, my ministry is all joy. Rather, Paul says that my life and ministry is a mysterious intermingling of joy and sorrow. Joy and sorrow. But notice what he also says about what's taking place in his life. This seems to be what Paul is getting at. He says the sorrow is intermittent. That means it comes and it goes based on circumstances or things, the way they're things playing out in his life and in his ministry but joy is constant. Did you catch that? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And why is joy constant? Why is the rejoicing always? Because the promises of God in Christ never change. And so even in sorrow, he's rejoicing. The sixth statement is in verse 10, as poor, yet making many rich. And we're reminded here of Peter when he was in the temple and he spoke to the lame beggar and he said to the lame beggar, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Paul was not a rich man, but he believed that what he had to give was far worth far more than money. Seventh and final statement here, or antithesis, is found in verse 10, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Though possessing no riches, no fame, no worldly glory, Paul was rich in the gospel. You know, as we look at these seven statements as a whole, as we step back, we've kind of gone through each one, but as we look at them as a whole, we realize that Paul is putting forth for us a very important gospel principle here. And the gospel principle is this, that things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as we first perceive them, but there is oftentimes a deeper spiritual reality that's taking place. There's so many examples of this in the Bible, right? You think about Moses. Moses kind of hit the height of his ministry when the Red Sea parted and God's people were led through and, and delivered from Pharaoh and all his armies. And then you know what followed that? Moses led a rebellious people through the wilderness for 40 years. 
seems like utter failure, right? Or you think about Isaiah or Jeremiah, the prophets, who were were called by God and faithfully proclaimed God's word, but God assured them that by and large people would not receive their message. Isaiah laments at one point, who has believed what he has heard from us? Or you think about Jesus, our Lord. In the last hours of his life and ministry, his disciples deserted him. He was condemned by the state, and he died an excruciating and humiliating death on a cross. So you, you look at those ministries, you look at those men being on mission for God, and, and according to worldly standards, you would say failure, right? But the thing that is true about each one of them is that God deemed each one of them a wild success because they were faithful to God and His message. Thankfully, there are many contemporary examples of this. I'll just share one with you. In the 19th century, I shared this actually for folks who are attending from Berea. I shared this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to kind of flesh the story out a little bit more. In the 19th century, John Patton and his wife were called by God and sailed to the New Hebrides Islands to take the gospel to those islands, and the islands were inhabited by cannibals. And uh, about 15 years prior to John Patton and his wife and his family going to the New Hebrides Islands, some missionaries had tried to approach the islands, but the second they reached the shore, uh, they were killed and they were eaten by the cannibals. And so John Patton and his wife And his family, before they left, there were those who were protesting and saying, you can't go. In fact, one respected elder back home said, the cannibals, you can't go, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. And John Patton, confident in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was not deterred. He responded by saying, when I die, I do not mind whether I'm eaten by worms or by cannibals, because my body will be raised with the resurrected Lord. Well, he went to the New Hebrides Islands, and so how did that story end? Well, after, before he went to the New Hebrides Islands, he had spent 10 years in Glasgow, Scotland, and he had had a very successful and fruitful ministry there. People were coming to know the Lord. People were growing in Christ. But when Patton arrived in the New Hebrides Islands, the first four years of his ministry were difficult and seemingly fruitless. The Lord in His grace did spare John Patton and his wife and children from the cannibals, but he lost his wife and his son to illness in those first four years. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. In fact, he speaks in his autobiography of the loss of his wife and child, and he says that the sorrow was so intense he thought he might lose his mind. In addition to that, there was little to no fruit in those first four years. I think there was one person who came to faith in Christ. And then after four years of faithfully ministering in the New Hebrides Islands, God granted a breakthrough. Patton, later looking back on those years, would write, quote, I claimed Anawa, which was the particular island he had focused on ministering to. I claimed Anawa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Anawa now worships at the Savior's feet. End of quote. By God's grace, the New Hebrides Islands as a whole came to faith in Christ. In addition to that, Patton's work on the islands became renowned back home. And thousands of people were inspired to become missionaries and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
In those first four years, if you looked at his ministry by just, just worldly standards, just perceiving in your own human way of thinking about things, you would think utter failure. Why would he be risking so much for so little? And yet, it is in those moments where ministry seems to be full of dying and death that Jesus loves to show up and display his resurrection power. This is a gospel principle, and Paul applied it to every part of his life and ministry. Death leads to resurrection. Think about Jesus' death himself as he hangs on that cross, as he's humiliated in shame, and people would say, what good could come of this? And yet then Jesus is raised, and he wins a salvation. For every tribe and tongue and language and nation, death leads to resurrection. We're going to have a couple people come this morning, and they're going to be baptized. And when they're baptized, we're going to place them under the water, and we're going to say, buried with him in baptism. You know what it means to be buried? It means to die, Right? Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Why would you want to die? Why would you want to die to yourself? Well, when we are joined to Christ in faith, our old man, our old sinful man dies, is put to death. And then that means resurrection life. That means less and less of me, more and more of Jesus. That's life. And it applies to mission. If we are to faithfully pursue Christ's mission, it's not by selfish ambition. It's not by fanfare, it's not by personal glory, but it's by giving ourselves sacrificially for the sake of Christ and others. And when we do that, we experience the resurrection power of God. My friends, may we pray that we would be such a people and that God would do glorious and great things through us. Let's pray. Father, this principle of death leading to life is so counterintuitive to us. And yet we see it played out in the life of Jesus, in the life of Paul, in beautiful and glorious ways. Oh, Father, we pray that we would let loose of whatever we might be holding on to so that we might know and experience your resurrection power. And Father, we pray that in doing so, that you would be pleased to do great and glorious things through Berea, through Crawford, and Lord, if our churches are to merge together through the new church that will be established. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace, and we thank you for this great mission that you have called us to. It's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.